I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to June's podcast series on one month to better investigations and internal reporting. So what do you do when the call, the email, or the personal tip comes into your office where an employee reports suspicious activity somewhere literally across the globe? That activity might well turn into a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act issue for your company. In today's climate, it can turn into issues under lots of different anti-corruption jurisdictions. The Brazilian Clean Companies Act, the UK Bribery Act, or even domestic anti-corruption laws such as brought GSK to bear in China. As the Chief Compliance Officer, it will be up to you to begin the process which will determine in many instances how your company will respond going forward and will set the tone throughout this most difficult period. This month's podcast series will provide to you all the steps you need to consider going forward. I'm going to take a look at independent versus in-house investigations, investigation protocols, the different resources that a compliance practitioner may bring to bear in an investigation, such as internal audit, IT, and legal. And I'll take a look at special issues such as privilege, Upjohn and Miranda warnings, data privacy, and of course, the Yates memo and its effect. I think you will learn a lot this month if you follow this podcast series. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to the June podcast series. Day five, the board of directors investigation protocol. Many companies have an investigation protocol in place when a potential Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or other legal issue arises. However, many boards of directors do not have the same rigor when it comes to such an investigation, which which could be conducted or led by the board itself. The consequences of this lack of foresight can be problematic because if a board of directors does not get an investigation which it handles right, the consequences to the company, its reputation, and the value can all be quite severe. The SEC considers a variety of factors around corporate investigations, including did management, the board, or committees of the board, consisting solely of outside directors, oversee the review? Did the company's employees or outside persons perform the review? If outside persons, have they done other work for the company? One should also consider the role of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act in internal investigations, most particularly for audit committees. Section 301 of the Act establishes certain requirements for the audit committee, including procedures for the receipt, retention, and treatment of complaints, procedures for confidential and anonymous submission by employees, and authority to engage independent counsel and other advisors. Finally, funding to engage advisors the board deems or the audit committee deems appropriate. In an article in the Corporate Board magazine, David Bailey and Tammy Aberon talked about five key goals that any investigation led by a board of directors must meet. These include, number one, thoroughness. How thorough is your investigation? Do you test how or whether the investigation can rely on the facts discovered without having to repeat the investigation? Regulators tend to be skeptical of investigations where limits are placed on the investigators in terms of what is being investigated or how the investigation is conducted. This question can uh, often be an initial deal killer, particularly if the regulator involved 
views the investigations as sufficiently thorough, its credibility is undermanned. Of course, this can also lead to the dreaded where else question. Number two, objectivity. This includes how the findings may impact senior management or other company employees. Investigations seen as lacking in objectivity will be viewed by outsiders as inadequate or deficient. I would add that in addition to objectivity, the same must be said with the investigators themselves. If the companies use regular outside counsel, it may be viewed with some askance, particularly if the client is a high-volume client of the firm, either in dollar amount or number of matters handled by the firm. Number three, accuracy. As part of any best practices anti-corruption compliance program, their three most important things are document, document, document. Admit it, you knew I was going to say that. This means that the factual findings of an investigation must be well supported. For if the developed facts are not well supported, the authors believe the investigation is open to, open to collateral attack by skeptical prosecutors and regulators, and it may be shareholders' counsel as well. If that happens, the time and money spent on the internal investigation will have been wasted because the government will end up conducting its own investigation on the same issues. This is never good, and your company may well lose what little credibility and goodwill it will have engendered through self-reporting and self-investigating. Number four, timeliness. Certainly in the world of FCPA enforcement, an investigation, an internal investigation should be done quickly. This is even more important after the Yates memo. In addition to the Yates memo, they was pre preceded by the tight deadlines of the Dodd-Frank whistleblower provision. There are also other considerations for a public companies, such as impending SEC quarterly or annual reports that may be, need to be deferred absent any timely resolution. Finally, both the DOJ and SEC may view delaying an investigation as simply part of document spoliation, so timeliness is critical. And finally, number five, credibility. One of the realities of any FCPA investigation is that a board of directors-led investigation is reviewed after the fact by not only skeptical third parties, but sometimes years after the initial events and investigation. So there's not only an opportunity for Monday morning quarterbacking, but quite a bit of post-event analysis. So <clears throat> it must be done, uh, must be seen to be credible, and how it was done, what was done, and who did it. Otherwise, the board's work will all be for naught. Dan Chapman, the chief compliance officer at Vimplecom, has said that this is a time for a very frank conversation with your board about what such an investigation will entail. Costs must be adequately discussed to set proper expectations. These include both direct cost and what Chapman believes may be even more important, the discussion of indirect cost to your company. He has noted that the biggest cost to a company during an investigation is diversion of management resources. Everything kind of stops to focus on the investigation. The indirect costs come through the largely through the time commitment of senior management to dealing with the investigation. If senior management has to commit 20% of their time, that's 20% they're not, that's not going towards revenue generating shareholder value protecting activities. Finally, Jonathan Marks, a partner at Markham LLC, has noted that after notification of serious allegations, board should take the following steps. One, consider creating a special committee to conduct the investigation. Two, establish a committee charter. Three, preserve electronic and hard copy documentation environment. Four, communicate with external auditors. And five, 
plan potential communications with the SEC, DOJ, and or the relevant stock exchanges. Marx also notes that while a special committee might be necessary in certain rare circumstances, the board should try to avoid forming a special investigative committee to oversee the investigation if its audit committee is composed of independent and disinterested investigators who are suited for the task. A special committee must be disbanded at some point, and the disbanding could become a complicated news item. Conversely, if the audit committee oversees the investigation, then once the investigation is complete, the audit committee can simply pivot back to its normal role, which would include the overseeing of the actual restatement process. Investigators, excuse me, investigations overseen by the audit committee also benefit from the positive relationship that the audit committee chair usually has with the audit partner of the company's external auditor. So what are today's three key takeaways? Number one, a board of directors should have a written protocol for investigations prepared in advance. Any investigation that's led by the board is obviously going to be quite severe, what Marx calls a stage five case. It could be up to a bet the company case. This is not a time you want to be freelancing. Number two, any board-led investigation must be credible and objective. This means you need to seriously consider who you're going to bring in. I've obviously talked about having <clears throat> investigative counsel, but you also need to consider the independence of the counsel. Finally, the investigation must be thorough, but a board can be cost effective. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to day four of One Month to Better Investigations and Reporting, and I hope you'll join me tomorrow for day five. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us, as it would help in our rankings and also help get out the word about the only daily podcast for the compliance practitioner. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Fox, thank you very much for listening this episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.